I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Today, we'll meet John Worth, a television writer, producer, and showrunner. As a young kid, he was a big reader and dreamt of publishing poetry, but his father's hostility drove him from home. At just 16, he lost his mother. Throughout these tough early years, he harbored a passion for poetry and screenwriting. It took him until he turned 30 to really get underway, but his journey is a study in what happens when you refuse to quit your dreams. It may have taken him a while, but he made it to the top of the television business where he has stayed for four decades, writing and producing shows like Nash Bridges, Remington Steel, Picket Fences, Hell on Wheels, and the new Netflix series, The Woo Assassins. So let's rewind to the beginning for a unique ride to the top of the television charts as we say it forward with John Worth. We'd like to start with, where are you from? I was born in uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, which is outside of Milwaukee, which is, according to Oprah, the poorest city in the United States right now. Tells you a little about uh, where I came from. And then uh, we moved around uh, quite a bit and finally uh, landed in Diamond Bar, California, when I was 12 years old. That is about 60 miles from downtown Los Angeles, just outside of a town called Pomona, which at the time was, this was in 1965, and it was very much of a Mexican-American kind of town and a black town. There were white people there as well, but in those days, and maybe it's still true now, the neighborhoods were very specific, you know, the as we called them then, the Chicanos lived in one area, the blacks lived in another area, the, the blacks lived in this part of town called Sin Town. By the way, if you were an athlete in those days, uh, which I was, you were protected. If you weren't an athlete, you were open to lots of fighting, lots of craziness going on. What kind of an athlete were you? I played football. I was too small. I broke fingers, ribs, shoulders, wrists. I mean, I broke a lot of bones. Finally, the football, I'll never forget the day he said, maybe you should try wrestling. (laughs) (laughs) So I did, actually. And I was a senior in high school. When I graduated from high school, I think I weighed 118 pounds. Were you afraid? Yeah, always. Always. Yeah, because I was a little white dude, so I was always afraid of getting beat up. And there was a lot of fighting then. I got in a lot of fights. How long did you live there? Uh, I went to um, what we used to call junior high school (laughs) there, all the way through to the end of my junior year of high school. And then my life changed dramatically. And I, well, I have to back up since you asked. I really loved California when we got here and, you know, really sort of took to the lifestyle and, you know, started playing sports and we had a band and um, I had this girlfriend, Tawny Wilson, who my wife knows about. So (laughs) she was my first love and I'm still sort of kind of in contact with her. We started going out when I was 14. I had been aware of her a couple years before that because she was a really cute girl. And at 12... She was going out with Mike Stangy, who was also a friend of mine. At 12. At 12. And then they broke up. And then we started going out at 14. My father was really against this. So Tawny and I went out between the ages of 14 and 17. Wow. When I was 16, my family moved to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. 
And thereby the ending, ending the relationship with Tawny? Almost. I had kind of been at war with my dad my whole life, but really it started in, it got real when I was about 12. And I did not want to move because you're a 16 year old kid and, you know, you're going to move from Los Angeles to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I didn't even know what that was. And it was a dead of winter. It was January. So my mother brokered a deal between my father and me. My father said, all right, if you come to Sioux Falls, South Dakota now, you can come back to Los Angeles for the summer. So I said, okay. And uh, this was in 1969. So I went there and it was a shock because that town had 30,000 people then, 40,000 people, colder than hell. And it was January. And sports were curtailed because of weather. Yeah. And I was the new guy and we'd moved around a lot and I was really tired of being the new guy and I had really settled into my life as a teenager and everything was just kind of escalating between my father and me at that point. So I toughed it out there for four months and then uh, school got out and I said to my father, okay, I'm ready to go. And he said, fuck you. This was after you reached an agreement with him. Yeah. He said, you're not going. And I said, we made a deal. And he said, I thought you'd forget all about that. And it was hard to keep a relationship going then because there were no cell phones or anything like that. It was all written written communication. I wrote a lot of letters and bad poems in those days. And she waited for you. She did, kind of. She had a Me Too moment in that period of time, which we didn't know was a Me Too moment then. I didn't hear about this until many, many years later, like 20 years later, she told me about it. So I decided, you know what, I'm leaving. So I got a job. I made enough money to buy a one-way plane ticket. And my mother conspired to get me out of there because it was bad. I got on a plane and was seated in a window seat. And I remember looking out the window and seeing my mother as we were taxiing away. And that's the last time I saw her alive. So I came back to Los Angeles and I was just knocking around, you know, it was summertime and I went back to the old neighborhood and, you know, was just couch surfing. So my best friend at the time, I had three best friends at the time. One guy, Gary Wimbish, was a black kid from Sintown. Another guy was Randy Fukasawa, Japanese American. His parents, I found out then because I didn't know about it then, were in Manzanar during the war. Mm -hmm. And the other guy was Tony Pedroza. So this group of white dude, black dude, Japanese dude, and Mexican-American dude were always running around. I realized, well, I'm not going back there. I'm not going back to South Dakota. The Fukasawas were both college professors. And this was kind of in the days of just drop in, hang out, you know, kind of thing. So they said, well, where do you live? And I said, well, nowhere. And they said, well, you're going to live here. Oh, my. Mm Mm-hmm. So they called my parents and told them that they had me and I was going to live there. And I'm sure my mother had to go into overdrive to keep my father from getting on a plane and coming to get me. And so that's where I lived. They had a fold-out sofa bed and I lived in that room in their house for my junior year of high school. I didn't go to school very much. I went to school in the fall to play football. And then we had a wrestling season after that in the winter. And then after that, I basically just, you know, stopped going to school because I had I 
had been sick with a cold one day and forgot to bring a note from Mrs. Fukusawa. So Randy wrote me a note. And so that became the note of record. So anytime I wanted to ditch school, he would just write a note. You know, Please excuse John Worth. You know, blah, blah, blah. He's, he's sick today. And we would just go to the beach. We'd go to Huntington Beach and, you know, or Newport wow. and just body surf and just hang around. We were doing a lot of uh, marijuana and stuff like that, you know, at the time. My favorite band at the time was Crosby, Stills and Nash. And I always kind of felt like David Crosby taught me how to talk to girls because of his beautiful lyrics, you know, on those early records. And we actually had uh, the pleasure of meeting David Crosby at a friend's house one time. And I got to tell him that and thank him for that, which was That's nice. so beautiful. Yeah. In January of that year, while I was away. Had you reconciled with Jutani? Were you yes. Guys, so, you're, so now you've got your so the we four are of you guys. Four of the guys and, and Tawny. Tawny. I didn't want to skip that important part because yeah. you went back there because you were in love. Uh, Randy had a girlfriend. And I remember one night we were going on a double date. And uh, so we picked up Tawny and Pam lived a couple streets over. We drove over there and we were in the car and Tawny and I were probably making out in the back seat. And Randy went up <laughs> to the door to get Pam. And then he came back alone. And we kind of went, well, what's the deal? And he said, well, her father opened the door and he saw me and he said, she's not going anywhere with you because he was Japanese American kid. So all of this kind of stuff was swirling around, you know, plus the war was on and it was, it was Were you sort of a happy-go-lucky kid or were Uh, you? Always. Yeah. Yeah. Just loving life. Right. You know, my birthday is January 20th and my mother called me and we talked and then I was skipping school on January 22nd and I was still at the house and the phone rang and I picked it up at the same time Mrs. Fukusawa picked it up downstairs and it was my father. And he said, Ruth is dead. That's my You mother. had just spoken to her the day before, pri- two days prior. Two days. Yes. And my grandmother lived with us and I thought he meant my grandmother because I wasn't able to hear it, you know. I got it. It got through to me. And a couple days later, my brother was at school at Santa Barbara. So George Fukusawa drove us, drove me to Santa Barbara. We picked up my brother and then we drove to LAX and we got on a plane and we flew to Sioux Falls. You must have been devastated. Oh, it was crazy. We buried her and then, and then I came back to California and my father said then, you know, you can go back, but when the school year's out, you're coming back here. And I was like, once I'm there, I'm never coming back here. So I came back out here and then we started selling weed and, you know, stuff like that. And before I knew it. Such an entrepreneur. So then, uh, you know, I got caught and the decision was made um, to remand me to my father's custody. Because you were still a minor. Yeah. And I was, I think about it now and I think, you know, couldn't I have just gone to the California Youth Authority? It might have been easier, you know. So that day was approaching and, you know, it was sad goodbyes with Tawny Wilson, of course. So because the Fukusawas, you know, didn't care if you had long hair or what, you know, I'd kind of grow my hair long, which was the thing then. And I went to the barbershop to get my hair cut before I got on the plane to go to South Dakota because my father had a whole thing about hair. So I arrived at the airport. He was there waiting at the gate. We got in the car and he drove directly to the barbershop. Even though you'd already gotten your hair cut. Yeah. It wasn't short enough. So he pulls up in front of the barbershop and he says, if you know what's good for you, you will get out of this car and follow me in there. I was scared to death of that guy. So I did, went in and he said, sit down. And I sat in the barber chair and he stood right there and said, 
don't be afraid to cut it too short. So then I got, you know, a buzz cut, which would probably be cool now. Yeah, you'd be right in was, the swing of things today. It was not good. <laughs> then I went to school for my senior year, was living with him. He got married in January of that year to a woman who had five kids. So that whole crew moved in. And then something crazy happened because Tawny Wilson and I were not together anymore. She ended up marrying a guy and having a baby, like when she was 18 or 19. And then he turned out to be gay. So <laughs> so that relationship didn't work. And then uh, Mike Stangy, who had disappeared, he dropped out of school at 17 and joined the Navy. So he was in the Navy for six or 10 years or something. Then he turned up and got back together with Tawny Wilson. And then they got married. Wow. And he adopted the son she had with this other guy, uh, Jason, and raised him, and they are still married. Oh, my. So <laughs> they're my two oldest longtime friends, and it's such a nice story. So then in January of my senior year of high school, I'm miserable, of course, no friends. Dad's there. I'm at, completely at war with him. I got this whole new family that's moved in. My space is the laundry room in the basement no windows it was like this is cool because at least you could play piano and guitar and stuff right but it was like just stuff stored in there tools and laundry and, and that's where whatever. they put your bed that's where my bed was no windows just that's where i lived and now you're 17 or almost 18 now i'm now i'm 17 and then so we start the new semester and um i took this class called note hand and um I met two people in that class, Steve Wendling, because I was worth, he was Wendling, so he was in front of me. Home room. And uh, he turns around, he goes, who the fuck are you and where did you come from? And I said, <laughs> well, um, terrible. I'm John Worth, and I came from Los Angeles, but that was five months ago. And, you know, and he goes, who do you hang out with? I go, no one. He goes, all right, I'm picking you up tonight. And we're going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Aww. And he saved my life because he introduced me to this group of kids. And it just was what I needed. Wow. But also in that class, sitting in the M row was Gail Mathias. Oh, no kidding. So we met. And so I kept trying to date her, but she was uh, dating this guy named Mike Greenlee, whose father had briefly been engaged to Gail's mother before Gail married Gail's father. So that everybody was saying, well, Gail and Greenlee are going to get married and, you know, they both grew up here and they've known each other all their lives. And that was a very small town. Everybody there was born and raised there. And, you know, anybody that had the slightest bit of gumption left as soon as they could. But all those kids knew each other forever. That's so, so serendipitous the, that he was right next to you and turned around and yeah, embraced you, right? Yeah. So through him, I met all these guys who, you know, became really really close friends. And so then Gail and I date a little bit. And then, uh, you know, my father would do shit like I'd get called to the principal's office and I'd go down there and he'd be down there with the police. And he would say stuff like, uh, yeah, I thought uh, I thought you'd be halfway to California by now. Huh? Let me make sure I understand this. For no apparent reason. He would come to school. He would check that see that you were still there, but he would accompany himself with the police. Correct. Wow. That was kind of the, that that was not, you know, that was rough. So uh, toward the end of the year, I got called to the office and I thought, oh crap, here we go again, you know? And I went down there and, but this time I went to the um, counselor's office and sat down with this guy and he's, he's, where'd you come from? And I 
told him the story and he goes, he said, man, you've fallen between the cracks. I'm sorry, but you have. He goes, where are you going to college? I said, college? <laughs> and he said, hey, man, if you don't go to school, you will be drafted and you'll be in Vietnam in three months. I was like, oh, shit. Uh, okay. So he said, the only place I can get you in school is South Dakota State University, which is a cowboy school kind of in the middle of South Dakota. So I said, okay, fair enough. So I went there. It was completely weird. Lots of anti-Vietnam stuff, even there, which mm -hmm. was soup, you know, the heart of What year was this? This was in 1971. And Gail and I had had a thing, but then she went to this, you know, fancy pants uh, private school in Minnesota, and I was kind of stuck there, and we were all kind of protesting the war. And then I, then you know, there was a lottery system then, so then I got a lottery number. I think it was twenty-seven. Oh, um, that's super, super, super low. Yeah. So I was going. All right, I'm not going to the war, and there were no more college deferments in those days. So I decided to go to Canada, and I started kind of working through that. And then I called my father to tell him I had made this decision to go to Canada. And he said, no son of mine is a coward. Don't call here again. And he hung up the phone. And I didn't talk to him for years. In any case, then um, Nixon decided to end the war and decided they were not going to take any more kids from the lottery. So I didn't go. In the meantime, Wow. I, you had some scary moments there. When you opened that envelope and saw the number 27, you must have had an absolute panic attack. Yeah. Well, they did it on television. They took the balls out of the thing, oh, you know, so, you, so we all went to, um, everybody got a case of beer and we were either going to drown our sorrows or celebrate depending on what your number was. So I got pretty shit faced that day. But anyway, so I'd a friend of mine was going to uh, school in Minneapolis, and so I was going to hitchhike to see him. There was a lot of hitchhiking in those days. You could do it. By now, you know, I've grown my hair to the ground and was just living that life, you know. I had no money. My father did not support me. I was just, I was penniless in my freshman year of college. It was just terrible. So then I started selling weed again. And... <laughs> What every well, good young I, man does. Yeah, one so I, down it's one thing I knew how to do. Start selling weed again. <laughs> so I hitchhiked over to see my friend Doug, and I probably planned this, or maybe I didn't. I don't know. But anyway, I was in the town where Gail's college was. So I of called her. Of course you planned that. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I tell All myself I didn't men. plan it. That it was <laughs> looking you know, for the girl. Yeah. Is Tony Wilson here? Oh, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so i called her up somehow miraculously i connected and um she said where are you and i said i'm i'm you know at down at the nickelback bar or whatever it was and she said well come up here so i went up there and never made it to doug's place that weekend <laughs> then we were smitten and i started hitchhiking over there every weekend it was a couple hundred miles so it was a it was a long haul. A couple of hundred miles of hitchhiking every weekend. That's a big undertaking. In that yeah. climate? Each direction. In that climate? Oh, yeah, freezing. Freezing cold. Freezing oh, cold. Oh, my God, you were so in love. Yeah. Look at yeah. you. Then she said, why don't you transfer to this school? And I just thought, I'm just white trash, you know, like I can't. I mean, yeah, you had a real high opinion of yourself yeah. after living the life you led. So she said, well, try it. I said, you know, this is not ever going to work. So I applied and got a scholarship and got accepted. Wow. And so I went there. I could I mean it was in, it was so expensive. 
$3,200 a year yeah. to go to school there. <laughs> At that time, that's a crazy and amount of money. That was what, a huge amount of money. What was the school? The school is Gustavus Adolphus College. Okay. There's a bunch of sister schools in Minnesota, small, private, usually affiliated with a religion. This mm-hmm. was a Lutheran school. There was chapel every day at 10 o'clock. I prided myself on never taking a class before chapel. And uh, it was a half an hour. And I never went to chapel except for graduation. We had to go in there. So I went there as a sophomore. And Gail and I were, you know, completely together. And then one day, Gail says, you're smothering me. Oh, Let's see. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, I did a lot of hitchhiking to get over here. Now I transferred over here. Now I'm here. I thought we were doing pretty good, but now I'm smothering you. She's like, yeah. She goes, I'm going to Spain for winter term. I said, okay. And she said, I'm going to experience European men. I said, oh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> so she left and I was there on campus and we had massive snow that year. It was beautiful. I loved it. Snow, it completely snowed in and we would, you know, get trays from the food service and ride the, you know, get drunk and ride the trays down the hills and stuff. And um, there was a young woman there, uh, this woman, Barb. So I saw her in the cafeteria one day and we started talking and she said her boyfriend had gone to Sweden or someplace. And very quickly, Barb and I got together and we just had this insanely <laughs> romantic month snowed in on campus. It was so awesome. If Gail ever listens to this, I'm she hates Barb to this day. <laughs> I can't even say that. So then Gail comes back and the boyfriend comes back and Barb and I were like, oh, okay, what do we do now? It's a small school. So we tried to see each other, but we sort of were thinking uh, this was maybe this was just a January term thing. And then Gail became aware of Barb and and then the boyfriend, you know, it was just got kind of ugly. But anyway, I kind of, kind of, sort of kept seeing Barb during that time. You and then, dog, you. <laughs> and then summer came around and Barb lived in Minneapolis and I would go up there occasionally. So she was going to Germany for junior year abroad and I was going to Mexico. So I was gone and Barb was gone and Gail and Barb's boyfriend were on campus. They got together <laughs> for uh, junior year. It's a total payback. That's amazing. <laughs> so uh, they had this whole thing. And this all became complicated after school because when we all graduated, we all moved to Minneapolis and there were a lot of parties and we'd all end up at these parties. And I was like ready to bite that guy all the time. You know, we graduated and we moved to Minneapolis and um, – I was still trying to figure out if I was going to be with Gail or Barb. I ended up deciding to be with Gail. So then I went to graduate school in Minneapolis. I studied education and English. So I got a master's and then I decided to teach school. And I got a job teaching school in a dropout program in South St. Paul, which was fascinating. And I loved it. This program was run by this nun, Sister Giovanni, who was a battle axe just a motherfucker. And um, she set up this program because she knew that there were a lot of kids who were failing because the system didn't help them succeed. So she said, we start school at 10 a.m. 
because these kids have a nightlife. And I'm thinking, that's good because I do too. So this is going to work out. We had a food program there and we had fundraising and all kinds of stuff. And it was fascinating. So I started teaching there and uh, it was really challenging and, and fun. And this was my first foray into the projects and stuff because I would have to go looking for kids, you know, would show up for a few days and go in there to try to find them. And I j I'll never forget, you know, the images of people just sitting around smoking and drinking at 11 o'clock in the morning right. when I'd come in looking, you know, for people. Anyway, I did that for a year. And then I got a job in a shishi part of Minneapolis called Were you YZ. married now? You no. committed to Gail? We're you not were married. together, but not married. She was seeing a lot of other guys, I found out after the fact, when I found a list <laughs> in her desk one day. You know, these people were having more fun than either one of us. I, well, seriously. I was trying to seriously. throw a surprise birthday party for her. And I had contacted all these people. And again, and this is pre-cell phone, so, you know, everything's written down. Right. So I, I sneak into her desk one day and go through her phone book and this list falls out. And I pick it up to put it back in. And I see the first name on the list is Mike Greenlee. <laughs> And the second name on the list is me. And then there's <laughs> a down. lot of names after me. Oh, a no. lot of guys I knew. And I'm going, uh, <laughs> put it back in. And then I, now, you know, and that was a whole thing between us. But anyway. Um, so you did a year at the dropout school with yes. Sister Giovanni. Right. And then doing I. Doing outreach and all that. Mm -hmm. And then you moved then I, to. Then, well, I didn't move, but I got a job at this Wyzetta Junior High School, which was in a sort of ritzy part of town. It's like the Brentwood um, of yeah, Minneapolis. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. Western suburb, yes. you know, rich kids. and. Were you starting the side of you that's creative at this point? Well, I started writing when I was very young. And reading. My mother was a reader. She was uneducated, but she read. And so I read. My daughter, when she was about six or seven, she said, I'm going to be a doctor. And, you know, she is. She is. And I said at the same time, I'm going to be a writer, even though I didn't know what that was. I remember I used to write a lot of poetry. And I remember one time my, uh, I was submitting this book of poems to somebody, Publishers Weekly or so, I don't know where. I spent a lot of time typing these things up and writing them and typing them. And I had this stack of poems on the table and this typewriter. And my father, he just came in, he goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to submit this book of poems. And, you know, and he just went, Whoosh! Jeez. And he wiped it off the tabletop. The typewriter went clank and pages fluttering everywhere. This is a whole thing. I mean, your dad had no joy. He was, I don't know what he was, violent. But anyway, so when I was teaching at YZ, that I started to realize I have a master's degree. Uh, this is my, I guess, third year of teaching. I'm making $11,000 a year. I don't dig it. I got to do something. So... Uh, this friend of mine and I wrote a script together. We decided to write a script. I don't know why. Who would think of that? You I know? can't even I mean, imagine. I, I All thought of people, a sudden, you're writing poems, and now you're writing a script. Yeah, I thought people, you know, on TV and in movies, just made it up. I mean, I didn't know anything about anything. Anyway, we wrote this script called "The Greystone Years," which he pulled out of his ass when I got this decade award or something at Gustavus. He also went to <laughs> Gustavus and, and I asked him to introduce me. And so he pulls out the Greystone years and starts reading, you know, dialogue because it was really about us at Gustavus. The and Greystone years was you was guys at script. college. Yeah. So we, we wrote it and we decided we we're going to go to Hollywood and, you know, get rich was and famous. Was it funny? It was probably terrible. 
But were you, was it, it was. intended to be humorous? It was humorous? T- intended to be Animal House. Uh, okay. And oh, Animal okay. House came out um, about three months after I got to Los Angeles with, with this script under my arm. He was about to get married, and his fiance said, you're not going to California. I thought, well, um, well, I'm going, you know, and he said, uh, I can't go. Susie won't let me go. <laughs> okay. So I came out here with that script. I knew uh, this woman named Lee Christensen that I met in Mexico City when I was going to school there. So um, she said, if you're ever in Los Angeles, call me. So I called her. Two buddies of mine jumped in my car and we had this cross-country trip and we went up into Canada and through the you know Canadian Rockies down to Vancouver and to Seattle and San Francisco and we got down to LA and I called Lee Christensen and she was living in a duplex in the Pico Robertson area. Hi, this is me, John. Yeah, she was, oh my God. Yeah, I mean, we were good friends in Mexico and we were not lovers, but we were good friends. Mm -hmm. So I was with my friend Negro, who was uh, my roommate in college and um, his name was Herman Lopez and he was from Ecuador. He was very dark skinned, so his family called him Negro. Negro and I were, you know, we we photobombed Lee Christensen's duplex apartment. And she was also living there with two other women. One was Shelly Brule, who was also in Mexico. But Shelly had met her husband, Tom. They weren't married yet, but and so she was kind of more or less living with Tom. And then Negro said, I'm going back to Ecuador which was not part of the plan, but suddenly he just decided he's going back. So he disappeared and Lee said, you know, if you want to pay Shelley's part of the rent, which it was three bedroom duplex, two bathrooms, 1,500 square feet, $500 a month was the rent. Then. Well, that sounds like a cheap amount of money, but at that time it was probably a lot for you. It was a lot for me because I had no money. Yeah, and you were um, working as a professor. You weren't making any money. I wisely had um, decided to take my money over 12 months rather than nine months. Mm. So I had the summer. I was still getting income for the summer. So I had to do something by the end of the summer. So I moved in there and then Gail was still living in Minneapolis because she was an actress by then. In those days, the government would fund theater companies and stuff. You know, there was a whole thing that I don't think exists anymore. And so she was working as an actress in Minneapolis, and then she started doing stand-up comedy um, with Louis Anderson and some other people from Minneapolis. And I was living in Los Angeles trying to be a writer, whatever that meant. Did you have a, a side hustle while you were trying to be a writer? Yeah. So Gail called me and said, there's this guy living out there named Larry Hurwitz, and he's from South Dakota, and you should meet him. Then you'll have a friend. So and he, Larry is a couple years older than me. Many years later, Larry's son, Max, they lived, Larry moved to Seattle, got married, had Max, who I would see occasionally when we'd go to Seattle and see Larry. He's, uh, then Larry called me and said, my son is going to USC film school. So Max packed up his little car with everything he had, came to my house, stayed with us for a couple nights. Then he went to USC film school. He graduated from USC film school and I hired him as a PA on a TV show. Then I promoted him to writer's assistant on another TV show. He worked for me as a writer's assistant for two years. Then I hired him as a writer on that TV show. And now he has a writing career. But wonderful. Yeah. Anyway, so I call Larry and um, I meet Larry and Larry has a girlfriend who runs this temporary employment agency. And uh, she goes, well, you know, can you type? I go, yeah. (laughs) She goes, 
I can get you a job tomorrow. So I start working as a temporary office employee around Los Angeles. And I worked in Century City and I worked downtown and I worked for Arco and I worked for all these people. And I would just answer phone. Los Angeles Consulting Group. How may I direct your call? And, so working, um, working by day, writing by night? Yeah. And that is when I stopped all drugs because I was a pretty heavy drug user from 16 to you know, 25-ish. Heavy drug user in all drugs or mostly marijuana? Weed and Those were the days psychedelics of and, and yeah, all that stuff because I couldn't afford the recovery time because I had so little time to write and I just wanted to be a writer. So I kind of went straight. So I was writing at nights and on the weekends and doing this job, these jobs, and uh, it was kind of nuts. And I was just writing scripts. I ended up writing about 25 spec scripts before I sold anything. And then about a year later, Gail moves out. And so she moves in. Had you seen each other during that time? No. But we were still sort of together. And, um, but she had a long list. I mean, I <laughs> her list was probably growing. Mine wasn't because you were um, focused on this I was writing. Try- yeah, thing. I was trying to be a writer. What encouraged you in those days? I mean, I know you. You say you almost came in as a kid, knowing you wanted to be yeah. a writer. What kept you going? Because it's a long time. Five years it took me. Yeah, you know, I have a really good friend named Steve Costello who has lived out of the country for thirty years. He was in Hong Kong for many years. Now he's in the Philippines. And he said to me recently, he said, I never saw anybody as single-minded as you about what you wanted to do. I didn't know it at the time or think about it. But anyway, Gail came out about a year after I was here. And um, she started working in the comedy clubs. And very quickly, she got spotted and cast on Saturday Night Live Mm -hmm. in 1980. I came out in 79 she came out a year after that. So she got cast on Saturday Night Live. Did she go to New York? She moved to New York. We broke up, kind uh-huh. of. I thought we were breaking up. Actually, I magnanimously said, look, this is this is an insane situation. You can't have a boyfriend on the West Coast. and be, I mean, it's just going to be distracting. And I have to say it was pretty magnanimous of me at the time. I don't know why I said it. I'm sure I regretted it because she took me up on it. And mm-hmm. She went mm-hmm. to be, you know, a fame. She got... Really famous, really fast. Mm -hmm. And then she got lonely and insecure and would call me up and say, you have to come over here. And so I would go over there for, you know, a week at a time or whatever. And then I was that horrible thing, you know, the idiot boyfriend of the star actress on Saturday Night Live, you know, right. wandering around at these things with Parties other famous and, people. Yeah. You know? What do you do? Oh, uh, you know. Yeah, because you had not closed the deal almost in your own mind with being a writer. You were just pursuing being right. a writer. And you're a young man trying to establish who you are. Exactly. Yeah. It was, it was bad. They wrapped the season... She came back to Los Angeles and she said, I'm moving to New York. I said, okay. So a couple of days after that, the phone rang. I answered it. It was the producer of the show. And uh, he said, uh, is Gail there? And I watched her get fired on the phone. Now, it turns out that she had kind of a Me Too moment with that guy. And I think it's why she got fired because she walked, she got out of there. And you did not, you were not aware of that factor no, at the time. Not, not until many years later. It was just, a, as far as you could tell, she got fired. And, it was unfortunate. And she didn't know why. So then uh, 
we started living together. She had a couple of other series opportunities after that. And then she was supporting me because she was a working actress and making money. And so I finally said to her, I have to stop working because I can't, you know, this is not work. I can't do this, you know. And so she agreed to support me if I would write. So I was sort of a kept man then, you know, writing. Uh, This was about three years. Three years of writing. Yes. And I was just writing script after script and trying to get them to people and meet people. And you Are know. you still in your 20s at this point? Yeah. 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 So finally she says, uh, and she's continuing to work and be an actress and getting well paid. And, you know, so there was always that thing of, oh, I'm that guy still, you know. So finally she said, you know what? I'm tired of supporting you. You got to get a job. I said, what if I get a job and I'm making a couple hundred dollars a week or something. I mean, what is the point of that? You know, how much food am I eating around here? You know, like, um, come on, you know. But you must have inherently known how talented you were and you just needed the move. You didn't know that? I still don't know. I was saying to a friend of mine the other day, I said, I don't know why I keep getting these (laughs) job offers. You know, I believe that you mean that, but the truth of the matter is, is that anybody that knows you would be surprised to know that fact. Well, well. Because you are massively talented and have had massive successes. It's amazing though, because there's a kind of steadiness to you that has probably served you. Well, it really serves. it, It is kind of a hallmark of mine. And you work I'm with the, the cool, same people. calm, collected mm-hmm. guy. Television business can be hysterical. And if you're cool, calm, and collected and you just say, okay, it's very, it's a steadying force on a TV show mm-hmm. and, and it's effective. At one point, I think we were about 28 years old and Gail says, she go, we're living together and she says, um, I'm thinking about dating other men. Again. Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, Okay. How's this going to work now? I mean, we're living together. You're supporting me. I'm trying to be a writer. And you're going to date other guys. She goes, yeah, I'm thinking about it. I go, okay, we we better go to – let's go to dinner and try to talk about this. So we went to this place on Westwood, which we had – used to like to go to was called Bit of Scotland. Do you remember that yeah, place? Yeah, I do. So we go to Bit of Scotland. Oh, that's a long time ago. And um, and we get a bottle of wine and we're basically, you know, breaking up after 10 years now. Mm. And um, we left that restaurant drunk and engaged. <laughs> so, so then we went to this this other place. That's so funny. And we celebrated and we got a Polaroid, which we still have. Some guy took a Polaroid there, the bartender. And then we uh, came home to to call um, her mother, who never liked me, thought I was the biggest loser, you know. Is she still alive, the mom? No. But she, Gail says, well, she kind of warmed up to you. I said, yeah, not really. Within a few months, we got married. We're 28 and I'm still trying to make, now she said, okay, now that we're married, I'll continue to support you. I was about 29, and uh, a guy that Larry Hurwitz had introduced me to, who was working in the William Morris mailroom, Gary Randall, who went on to become a very successful television producer. He calls me up, and we, we had become friends, and um, he said, what are you doing tonight? I said, I don't know. What am I doing tonight? He said, we're going to the Dodger game. Okay. He goes, yeah, we're going to go. I'm taking this other guy, John Scheinfeld. He works at MTM. He's a junior development exec at MTM, and uh, I want you to meet him. Okay. At this point, I had written um, 
movie script, a half-hour sitcom for um, Family Ties. Yeah. And I'd written a Remington Steel oh. script. And I said, okay, you know, this is taking too long. I don't understand why it's so hard to get into the writing business in Hollywood. This is nuts. I'm almost 30 years old. I'm not going to be poor the rest of my life. I wanted to make money. So what an idiotic idea to come to Hollywood to try to do that, you know, yeah, for, God, for most people. <laughs> so we go to this Dodger game and I meet this guy and he goes, what do you do? I'm a writer. And, and he goes, oh, yeah, OK. And uh, he goes, what have you written? I said, uh, nothing. But I, you know, just wrote these three scripts. And he goes, what are they? And I said, blah, 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 Remington Steele. And he goes, he goes, oh, well, you know, Remington Steele is an MTM show and I'm sort of in charge of finding writers for that show and they're looking for writers. Can I read your script? I go, yeah. So I sent him the script by snail mail because that's how how we did in those days. And um, some time went by and he calls me up and he goes, hey, um, this is pretty good. You know, um, would you mind doing another pass with notes from me? Because I'm, I sort of know what's going on in the show and what they're looking for, whatever. And I said, yeah. So I do it pass and he goes, yeah, I'm going to send it down to uh, Michael Gleason, the executive producer, creator of the show. So some time goes by, a lot of time goes by, and I think, well, you know, screwed the pooch again, you know, what a great opportunity. Bye -bye. And then my phone rings and um, it was Michael's assistant, Jan, and she says, I'm calling from Michael Gleason's office. Um, <laughs> you must have been out of the mailroom. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh. and uh, would you be available to come in and have a meeting with Michael? And I said, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> so, so I drive over there. Um, I'll never forget that drive going over Laurel Canyon and just thinking, what is this? You know, what does this mean? Is my life about to change? If I got a job there, this is how I would drive to work. You know, all that crazy all that, stuff that goes yeah. through your mind. So I go there, I'm on the studio lot, and the only time I'd been on a studio lot is when I had snuck on, you know, before, and you could do it in those days. That Anyway, I go in there, sitting outside the office, I'm just, you know, freaking out, and um, I go in, and there's Michael, and he's like a 45-year-old guy from Brooklyn, and he says, um, I love your script. And I go, okay. <laughs> and? What a moment, huh? And he says, um, I'm going to buy it. And I just went, you're fucking with me right now, right? <laughs> and he goes, no. He goes, it needs some work. He used to always say, we need to do a little bit of work on it. And he goes, so we need to do a little bit of work on it because there's a lot of stuff going on on the show that you don't know about because you're not here. But I want to redevelop this script with you and then have you rewrite it and then we're going to make it. I'm like, okay. Over a couple of days, we go through his thoughts and I go home with a script assignment on Remington Steel. That they're paying you for. That they're paying me for. Wow. Did that feel and different? Yeah, it was crazy. The pressure was yeah. enormous. And I had met Pierce before he was Remington Steel because we had, Gail had a friend, Ruby Wax, who was sort of a comedian, lived on and off in England. And we had gone over to her apartment in Hollywood one day and was really hot. And um, there was this tall, shaggy haired guy and this beautiful blonde woman and, and it was Pierce. So now I'm writing, rewriting this script and um, I drive over to MTM, I give it, turn it in and I go home and nothing, crickets, <laughs> three weeks. And I thought, oh, oh my man, God. I fucked this up. I can't believe I did that. Well, okay. You know, I gave it my best shot and I was starting to think about uh, now what am I going to do? Because I said, if I didn't make it, I was out of here. Then the phone rings and it's 
Mother Jan, and she says, are you available to come to a meeting with Michael? I said, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not doing anything. <laughs> I go over there, and I think he's just going to say, nice try, but see ya. And I walk in. I sit down in front of his desk. He had these two chairs. He goes, uh, what are you doing right now? Well, what is that a trick question? What do you, what do you mean? He goes, I mean, in your life, what are you doing? So I started bullshitting him. You know, well, I got this. Uh, I'm working on this. Yeah. And, uh, and he goes, you're not doing anything, are you? And I go, not really, no. <laughs> and he goes. Um, That's such a Hollywood answer. He says, I love your script. You did a beautiful job on the revisions. And I'd like to hire you on staff. I said, starting when? He goes, how about tomorrow? I go, I'm free. I think I'm free. <laughs> So then it was the whole thing of, you know, driving onto the lot and there's a parking spot and it's there's a little nameplate, John Worth, on the parking spot, which was so insane. And I got an office and I'm suddenly a staff writer on a TV show. And it was crazy. I think I was making, can I say that, like a... $1,000 a week or something like that. Mm. Which at that time was probably a crazy amount of money well, for you. Versus the last sal salary you mentioned. Crazy. It's I think the year before I had made $10,000 working as a temporary And now typist. you were making that a week. It was for 40 weeks. Right, that's so what I'm saying. So it was $40,000, yeah. you know. It was an enormous Suddenly amount Suddenly Gail of money. wasn't supporting you anymore. Yeah. Had you collaboratively written with other people and worked with other people, or was that a new thing for you also? Totally new. I went on that show. I was on the show for two years, and uh, this was when Pierce was offered um, James Bond, and there was a lot of tension. Was he going to do it, and you know, um, with, were they going to hold him to his contract? And we all know kind of how that worked out. So anyway, then I went on to Warner Brothers. I made a development deal there. Now you're making money. Did you have any of your children yet? No. So you're still you're married so to Gail. You're happy. We, we She's not supporting she, you anymore. No, and she was still working and. You know, she got a job in a series in London, and so she went to London to do the series, and I was in Los Angeles doing Remington Steel, and we were quite the Hollywood couple, you know, <laughs> and she would call me and say, uh, let's meet in New York, and so we, you know, I'd go to New York, she'd go to New York from London, and it was really fun. It was really fun. We bought a house in 1985. We bought this house in the Hollywood Hills. It was a deco-modern home, and I mean, I had a house. I never thought I'd have a house. You know, it was incredible. And so we started furnishing it with antique deco furniture. And everywhere we went, we would search for furniture. So every piece of furniture in the house had a story. You know, oh, we bought that in Dallas. Oh, we bought that in San Francisco. You know, it was fantastic. Then we had a writer's strike in 1988, I think. And uh, Brad, that was the first of the two big writer's mm -hmm. strikes. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. So, and that was a six month strike. So Brad and I were hanging out every day just fucking around. It was like being at summer camp. I mean, I made so much money that I didn't, by that I don't mean millions of dollars, but enough where I, you know, I didn't really, wasn't sweating the money. Right, I and you knew it very, would be over eventually. Yeah, I felt fortunate because I had been working steadily to be able to, you know, kind of go through that strike. A lot of writers suffer during strikes. So while we were hanging out in the six months, we came up with this idea for a TV show and we went back to work and we pitched it to Grant he bought it. We went out. We sold it to CBS. Uh, we made it and got on the air. And then it was off the air. I mean, it got on the schedule. Then it was off the schedule. Then it got on the schedule. And then it collapsed. What show was it? It was called The Bakery. And I remember when we screened it at CBS, Barbara Corday was the president of CBS at the time. So I was sitting next to her and the lights come up and I turn and she's got 
tears in her eyes. And she said, if there was a missed beat in that pilot, I didn't see it. Wow. This was sort of another step where you become a creator of a TV show. So she leaves and I look over at Grant, you know, the Stonehenge of the television business with everything that he is, you know. And I go, Grant, I mean, what does it mean? And he goes, here's what I would do. He said, do you have a favorite restaurant? I said, yeah. He goes, I would call your wife. I would tell her to meet you at lunch. Call the restaurant, make a reservation. When you go there, order your favorite bottle of wine. Have a beautiful lunch with your wife because it can all turn to shit tomorrow. Mm. <laughs> and so, it's kind uh, of what Stephen Hawking said, you know, make sure you're always looking up because you don't know when it's going to end. Yeah. So that, so, and, and it did end and he was right. It didn't happen. But as a consequence of Brad and I doing this project together, we became a de facto team. We never split a salary or shared a contract. We always had individual deals, but we always wrote together. So for five or six years after that, we were developing stuff together. It's very intimate when you have a relationship like that. It's like having two marriages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at one, at some point in time, it has to break and it broke for us. And I was too, by then I had, I had Hannah and we had a new baby and Brad wasn't married and I was really uh, nervous about making a living. And so we said, okay, we're not getting anything going in development. Let's go on a TV show. So we went on a TV show and now we were splitting a salary. And at one point he walked into my office and he goes, why are we doing this? We're making half of what these guys are making and we're doing the same amount of work. I said, I know. He goes, we're splitting up. I said, okay. But then I didn't have the balls to do it. And he did it. And it was quite a shock. So our agent said, well, I know I can get you guys a job, but I don't know if I can get you a job. And I don't know if I get you a job. And so Brad said, we're not you guys anymore. And we never really set out to be you guys. We just kind of stumbled right. into it, you know, mm -hmm. and we loved each other and still do. Um, and we had so much fun together. The agent said, you better write a spec script. So I wrote a spec picket fences. Hmm called Stripe Ed Measles. So I wrote this script because I remember coming downstairs to my mother one time when I was maybe four or five. And I had all these welts and things on my body and I didn't understand what had happened to me. I didn't connect it to my father beating me the day before. And I said, uh, you know, I have striped measles. I never knew her as an adult, so I never had a chance to talk to her about any of this. So I wrote this really powerful picket fences about child abuse and everybody was knocked out by wow. it. Wow. So I got hired on that show. What a show that was. So then that show was canceled after the fourth season, I think, and it was replaced by Nash Bridges. And the guy that created Nash Bridges, Carlton Cuse, had created with Jeffrey Bohm and David Simpkins a show called The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. And that's the show Brad and I did when we decided to go back on staff. Because mm -hmm. Nash Bridges was shot, if I remember this correctly, uh, it was shot in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you were doing a lot of traveling with, yes. a, with a young family at home. Yes. And by the way, I could get from the St. Francis in Union Square in San Francisco, picked up by a van, taken to Oakland. This was before 9-11. Get on a plane, fly to Burbank, get picked up there, taken to my office at Warner Brothers, almost faster than I could drive from the Palisades to Warner Brothers to get to my office. <laughs> yeah, so I decided to retire at 59. I took my pension and I figured, okay, I can rent my house. I'd had a lot of conversations with Rebecca about this. 
can rent my house, I can pay my mortgage, which was less than the value that I of my house. And so I could get, you know, probably twice or three times what my mortgage is in rent. So I thought, you know, I'll pay the mortgage and then I'll still have some cash and I'll have my pension. And so we can go live someplace cool and I don't have to do this every day. And I had a meeting with my agent and I said, prior to this, and I told him what I was going to do. And I said, uh, you know, I just can't, I can't, I can't do the hours. I can't, you know, I mean, who wants another script from me? And the jobs I've been doing are very intense with crazy actors and shows that are just falling apart. And, you know, he goes, yeah, but you're good at it. I said, I know, but maybe there's something else in the world that I could do, you know? So he goes, well, maybe you just need to get like into the cable space where there's less episodes and it doesn't take all, you know, and it's, there's more prestige. So he calls me up and he says, go to AMC and, and meet on the show called Hell on Wheels. And I said, what, what do you mean? It's how long has this been on? He said, two years. So what, what's the deal? He said, well, these two brothers created it and they put a showrunner on it because they were not TV people and they didn't get along and the show kind of cratered and those three guys are out. And they're looking for a showrunner. And I went, oh, God, no, no, I'm not doing this again. He goes, I already set up the meeting. You got to go to the meeting. I have relationships there. You have to go to the meeting. I said, all right. So I said, I'm not taking this job. He goes, just go to the meeting. I said, okay. So uh, I go to the meeting. Then there's three people in there. And they say, oh, it's, you know, really, I'm so glad you're here, blah, 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 blah. What do you think of the show? And I said, I don't know. And they go, what do you mean? I said, I haven't seen it. So they, I don't think I knew that. That kind of stunned them. And they go, well, what are you doing here? I said, well, you know, my agent, you know, I had a meeting with them and we kind of decided this is a sort of kind of show under the right circumstances I would like to do. But I've done a lot of this stuff and uh, this is sounds like a mess to me. And, you know, I know you guys ordered it and then you pulled the order back and it just sounds. So you were really trying to get that job, yeah, huh? I saw, it sounds messy <laughs> and I, I don't want to do that. And they're just looking at me like, who the fuck are you? And what are you doing in here wasting our time? And um, I said, you know, I was involved in setting up the showrunner training program at the Writers Guild. I know a, a lot of people that do my job. If you're looking for somebody and you want me to weigh in on who these people are, I'm happy to do that. And they said, no, no, that's what we do. And we'll do that. Thank you. I said, okay. Um, thanks for meeting me. Uh, good luck with the show, you know, and I left. So I get in my car and I'm not even out of the parking garage and my cell phone rings and it's my agent. And the first words out of his mouth are, what the fuck <laughs> did you say in there? And I said, Paul. And he goes, they want you. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. I said, what? He goes, dude. They are all, oh, they want you. That's amazing. I said, you got to be kidding me because I just went in there and crapped all over them. He goes, well, whatever you did, remember it because you got to teach somebody else how to do it because these guys are <laughs> on it. So then uh, he said, you got to go to this other meeting with, with the <laughs> studio so people, funny. you know, and I go, oh my God. So I go to this meeting and there's three people in this meeting and I'm like, guys, uh, you know, I really don't, I don't want this job. I, I just think it's going to be messy. And, you know, my kids are, are gone and, you know, my wife and I are kind of rediscovering each other and I just don't know if it's the right time for me. And they said, look, and this is the part of the story I think what you were talking about. They said, just look at the show. I said, all right. So they hand me 
20 episodes, 20 hours of the show. I get in my car and I think there's no fucking way I'm watching 20 hours of the show. So I get home and I say to Gail, all right, look, I don't know how this happened, but they <laughs> want me to do this job. And I'm not going to do the job because we're going to Italy or Seattle. And um, I just don't want to do it. So I'm just going to let's just look at a few minutes of the pilot and then I'll tell him I watch the show and it's not for me. She goes, OK. I said, but, you know, since we're in this together, you know, let's watch it together. She goes, OK. So I, I put it on the pilot and um, we're watching for a couple minutes and then the star of the show comes on and he's this beautiful guy, Anson Mount. And uh, from the peanut gallery next to me, I hear Gail go, oh, <laughs> <laughs> so I freeze it and I look and I go, what does that mean? She goes, oh my, he's gorgeous. Oh. And I said, yeah, but and she goes, I think you're taking this job. And I'm like, mm -hmm. why? She goes, because I want to meet him. I said, he's, you're old enough to be his mother. She goes, he doesn't know that. So, so um, I you watched. You just did Gail very well. Oh my God. So I watched some more episodes and I actually really liked the show. In fact, I love the show. And I started thinking about what's wrong with the show? You know, what happened? I didn't know. I thought I could fix it. I didn't know even what needed fixing. So now I go back to the meeting. I watched a bunch of the episodes, not all of them. I go back and they go, what's wrong with the show? And I said, I don't know, but I can fix it. So they hired me. And so I went, took that show over in the third season. And then we went for four more years on that show. It's a great and show. So Pickett got canceled. I went to Nash. With Carlton, stayed on that show for six years, really sort of made my bones on that show because Carlton, you know, brought me in to the loop. And So in your career, you have been a writer, yeah, a producer, yeah, a showrunner. Yeah. What's your preference in all of those things that you do? Well, when people ask me what I do, I say I'm a writer. That's the easiest thing because you're sitting by yourself in your own <laughs> head, mm -hmm. talking to yourself, you know, and saying stuff. Um, and writing it down. I would say that I've had the pleasure of knowing you about 25 years. And in that time, I have seen you have wild success. You have an amazing reputation. Oh, thank you. I'd have never heard anybody say anything about you except that you have an immense talent and that they love working with you. I want to say congratulations to you on your massive successes. Thanks. And your wonderful family. I really enjoyed talking to you. Next time, we welcome a very special guest and one of America's legendary film producers, Mike Metavoy. Mike was co-founder of Orion Pictures, chairman of TriStar Pictures, head of production for United Artists, and is currently the chairman and CEO of Phoenix Pictures. He's been honored with countless awards, including Motion Picture Pioneer of the Year, numerous international film festival awards, UCLA's Career Achievement Award, and the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Cannes Film Festival. It's easy to see why. From agent to studio chief to producer, Mike has made some of America's great films, including Rocky, Annie Hall, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Platoon, Amadeus, Dancing with Wolves, and Black Swan. His films have garnered 17 Academy Award nominations and have won seven Oscars. This man has quite the resume, and he's still delivering groundbreaking work both in film and television. So join us when we rewind to the beginning with super producer Mike Metavoy on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. 
please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 